Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be divide, five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go down, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So this morning, we asked the question, what did Jesus come for? What, what is Jesus' purpose from his own mouth? And if you were to give a few short answers, somewhere to ask you, you know, why did Jesus come? What sort of answer would you give? I mean, there's lots of answers, and there are actually many from the mouth of Jesus when he states his own purpose uh, from Scripture. And if we, just a quick survey of some of the things that from Jesus' mouth were the purpose of his own mission. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have come, there's a purpose statement, I have come to abolish, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came, there's a purpose statement, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, or the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. That's, he came not to be served. That's the same as this, as Luke chapter 10, 45, I believe. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. If we go to Mark chapter 2, verse 7, here's a purpose statement. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came, statement of purpose, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke chapter 5, 32 says this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The same thing he'd said there earlier in Matthew. Luke 19, verse 10 says, for the Son of Man came, there's a statement of purpose, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Going on in John chapter 6, lots of purpose statements here. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has come, what's his purpose? To do the will of God that he has sent him for. John 10, 10 says, I came that they may have life 
and have it abundantly. There's a statement of purpose. I mean, we go, this is me just cherry picking a few. John chapter 18, verse 36, Pilate asked Jesus, so are you a king? Jesus says, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Purpose statement, purpose statement, purpose statement of who Jesus is. And those are straight from the mouth of Jesus. And most of them are very reassuring words. It's great to hear that Jesus did not come. He came to seek and to save the lost. He did not come to save the righteous but sinners and to call them to repentance. Those are all great, encouraging verses. But this morning... We have some different kind of purpose statements. There's, and there's other ones besides what we hear this morning. John chapter 9 verse 39 doesn't give you so much of the warm fuzzies as these other ones. John 9 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. That's his purpose. He says, for this purpose, uh, for judgment, I came into the world. That's not the purpose of Jesus that you find on the coffee cup, is it? Like no one's drinking coffee out of the cup that says, for judgment, I have come into the world. And drinking that as their first dose in the morning. No one is looking to greet the day with those words of Jesus, but they are his. They are his words. For judgment, I come into this world. One of the main reasons why I'm passionate about working systematically through the text of Scripture is because it forces us to get the whole picture of who Jesus is. It forces us to get the whole picture of the revelation of God. We're not, we don't get to cherry pick this idea of Jesus that he's some sort of just smiling, comforting guru all the time. And this is the, this is the portrait of Jesus that I have, and it's the one I always think about. When we, when we work through the text of Scriptures, we, we have to see, yes, Jesus is a happy Savior. Jesus certainly is a comforting Savior. But he also says things like this. Our text this morning is no different. Right at the beginning, verse 49, Jesus says, I came. This is a statement of purpose. And I came to do what? To cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. Put, I came to cast fire on the earth. Put that on your coffee cup and drink it. I mean, can you imagine going, I've got, I've got my whole coffee cups laid out in the cabinet in the morning and the, I've got smile, it's a great day or don't talk to me until this, you know, they have that coffee cup that's like, uh, don't talk to me until my coffee's this low or whatever. Or you can have the coffee cup that says, it's, I came, gee, I came to cast fire to the earth. Jesus. <laughs> this is, this is strong language coming from Jesus. And he goes then to this next purpose statement in verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No. No, I tell you. But rather division. That's coffee cup choice two. Words of Jesus. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you. But rather division. Jesus. You know, the allies have those little quotes and who said it. This is the purpose statements 
of our Savior. What can Jesus mean in statements like this? I mean, we have to take them all together. These were all purpose statements. But we can't just say, well, I don't like those two, so let's put them back in the closet, pretend like they don't exist, and we're just going to kind of cling to the warm, fuzzy ones because this is the Jesus I like. I don't like this this guy over here. So what does he mean, though? What's going on that he's saying, I came to cast fire and that I did not come to bring peace but division? At a very simple level, Jesus, it's this. Jesus means business. He's not fooling around. The mission that he's on is not some sort of light, um, just enlightenment kind of, uh, here's a neat idea. Jesus means business. When it comes to our stance with Christ, Jesus is not playing around. He's not here to just think of new ideas, to give pats on the back or, you know, sort of warm fuzzies. Jesus means business. He says that he has come to cast fire on the earth and he wishes that it was already kindled. The fire there is either judgment, most likely he's just speaking of judgment, that there is judgment coming. We have many places we could go to in the scripture speaking of the fire of judgment that is coming. But it could also mean sanctification. One commentator says it like this, fire has a twofold effect. It destroys what is combustible and it purifies and refines non-combustible objects. Like, you know, you take gold and you burn it to purify it, right? And you take wood, hay, and stubble and you burn it to consume it and it's gone. It's turned to ash and turned to nothing. And this fire that's coming is coming, 1 Corinthians, I think it's 13, but anyway, in the teens there in 1 Corinthians, speaking of Jesus coming. It might be chapter 3 now that I say that. I can't remember for sure. I think it's 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians, now that I'm continuing to think about it. But this idea of Jesus, of, of everything being tested at the final day, to see if what you have, it will refine like gold. If you've built with, with precious things, they'll be displayed. If you've built with hay, wood, and stubble, consumed and gone. Jesus is coming so that what is combustible will be righteously destroyed. And that which is non-combustible will be made pure. If you think Jesus is all about pats on the back and self-esteem, you have missed the Jesus that is revealed to us in pages of Scripture. Jesus has an urgent and serious mission that he is eager to be fulfilled. The second statement of purpose is even more startling though, right? Because, let me ask you, has Jesus come to bring peace? I mean, if I were to just take a poll out in the, everyone driving by, we started stopping cars. Did Jesus come to bring peace? Everyone would answer, yes. But we hesitate to answer that this morning, don't we? Because we just read the text. Jesus, has he come to bring peace? We would, I mean, we're not sure how to answer because it seems like the right answer is yes, doesn't it? Is there any confirmation? Is anyone, the answer seems like, yeah, Jesus came, no one, everyone thinks Jesus didn't come to bring peace. Of course you think that, right? We have, he is the Prince of Peace, is he not? When we have the Christmas whole thing going on, it's he's come to bring glad tidings, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Jesus has come to do this. So what's he talking about here? He says, I've not come to bring peace. 
What is going on? And it seems to me to be an example of Jesus trying to teach something by making shocking statements. He's, he's teaching a principle by making shocking statements. To say that in no way at all Jesus brings peace would be inaccurate. But there are different dimensions to the peace that Christ brings. The first and the foremost important peace that Christ brings is the vertical peace between sinners and a righteous God, right? The peace that is brought between God and man. There's a war between God and man. We are at enmity, the Bible speaks of it. We are at war with God. There is hatred between God and us. We have rebelled. We have walked away. We have are all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. was in our call to worship this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. We are by nature children of wrath. We are at war with God. And what Jesus does, right... He puts on flesh, he incarnates, he puts on humanity, lives the righteous life we should have lived, dies the death that sinners deserve on the cross, so that every sinner in this room this morning, which we all are, can repent of their sin, look to Christ and his righteousness, look to Christ and his death on the cross, and be forgiven of their sin and adopted into the family of God. So Jesus absolutely does bring peace. Between God and man. Sinners can be not just forgiven, but actually adopted into God's family. That's incredible peace, right? So there's this, there's a vertical peace that absolutely does come because of the work of Jesus. The other piece is horizontal peace. We have talked about vertical peace. What about horizontal peace? Does Jesus never bring horizontal peace? Well, he absolutely does. We could go on there in Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about this distinction between the Gentile and the Jew. They had ethnic clashes. They were not at peace. They did not like each other. And, and Paul writes there in Ephesians that what Christ has done is he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and taken the two families and made them one. Jesus bringing peace between these two ethnic Jews and Gentiles and making them into one family. They are at war with each other and Jesus brings peace by putting them both into one family. In a very real sense, Jesus can take your greatest enemy, the person who hates you and persecutes you, maligns you, and when their eyes are opened to their own sinfulness and to the beauty of the gospel and they trust Christ, they are forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God and made a member of your family. Jesus brings real peace in that he takes those who are enemies, maybe even persecutors, and converts them to Christ. And when he does so, we become one family. We become, uh, you're no longer enemy, but you become family. This is the real peace that Christ does bring. So then why does he say he's not here to bring peace, right? I mean, that's the question we're trying to get to. Seems like he says, everything we've just talked about, we kind of know. Jesus brings peace. Why does he say he doesn't bring peace? Peace is not always what Christ brings in, a hor in the horizontal realm. When Jesus enters the picture, it doesn't always bring peace. Sometimes Christ brings division. Fortunate here in America with freedom of speech that we're very grateful for and things like that, that you can kind of hold your beliefs and, and, is, and it's, it's okay. There's no violence so, you know, at a great level against those who don't believe. But there are other places like Indonesia that we prayed for and other countries where uh, if you convert to Christianity, you're likely to lose your family. 
Um, if you convert out of Judaism, out of the Muslim faith, that, that is a very strict uh, faith for that family, and you convert out of it, and you confess Christ as your Savior, what that means many times is that you, your family is going to shun you and disown you. Christ divides. Christ divides. In, in, in very real ways, Christ does bring peace, but in a very real way, Christ does bring division. And this happens on all sorts of levels. Everything you care about can bring division. So you can think, well, let's not talk uh, religion or politics because those things bring division. Let's talk football. Well, okay. So let's say you gather at a family uh, gathering. You talk with somebody. You both love football. You found a common interest. You talk and talk and talk and talk. And then you find out their favorite team is the team you absolutely hate. So what once brought this great unity of football actually brings division. Right? So there's all sorts of examples. Or, Or say you're very interested in politics. That's not me, but maybe you are. Politics is your thing. You love thinking about political theory and all that stuff. So you're at a family dinner and you meet someone who loves politics as well. And you're like, oh, great. Somebody I can talk about what's going on in the world and all of these different things. And you have something to have unity over. But then you find out they like a candidate that you absolutely hate. And so what brings unity in some cases ends up bringing Further division. Well, the the issue of Jesus, the issue of Christ, is certainly not less important than those things. He's far more important, and therefore we have he has far greater consequences. So it brings us to the main idea of the text this morning, which is that the seriousness of Christ's mission demands dividing, clear-eyed, and urgent decisions. The seriousness of Christ's mission demands dividing, clear-eyed, and urgent decisions. In verses 52 and 53, we see this division, right, that actually goes on. We see this division between this family. There's five of them, three against two, two against three. How can this be what happens? How can Christ bring this division? The seriousness, big, our main idea, the seriousness of Christ's mission demands dividing decisions. Not everyone will be excited about those who choose to follow Christ. Not everyone's going to be excited about that. The question is not whether this will happen, but the question is, if the division does come your way, which side will you stand on? Are you willing to have the, the vision of Christ, your joy in Christ, your understanding of the gospel, your, your faith in Him to be something that divides. Jesus is saying here this morning in our text that the reality, the seriousness of His mission demands dividing decisions. That yes, Christ is who He says. Jesus, in these last few chapters, we've visited it over and over again, He's not okay with fence riding. He's not okay with fence riding. He's not okay with those who sit afar off and judge and try to say, ah, I'm going to write. He's pushing all the time into making a decision. Some people are fond of saying, you know, doctrine divides, Jesus unites. Well, the next time you hear that, send them to Luke 12, 51, where Jesus says, I divide. I divide. What is it, though, about Jesus that then does divide? There's too many things this morning to go through about what Jesus divides over. But if you could pick a few, the first real big one, Jesus divides people because he calls sinners 
to himself. And so in order to come to Jesus, you first have to make the confession and understand yourself to be a sinner. And if there's anything our world does not like, is to be told that they are sinners. Is to be told that they are sinful. Is to be told that they think they love God, but they actually love themselves and are at war with God. That reality alone will bring division. (laughs) You don't have to go far believing in Jesus, believing the gospel message that Jesus saves sinners, to realize that once you start recognizing, realizing that the world is full of what kind of people? Those who are sinful in need of rescue. That will bring division. And you can see how in a family like is described here by Jesus, where it could bring division. If a family said, I'm not sinful, I'm, God's okay with me. What are you talking about? And the other people are saying, no, the scripture is clear. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, gift, not the earned, earned response of God, the gift of God is, is salvation through Jesus Christ. You start saying things like that, it brings division. The seriousness of Christ's mission brings dividing decisions. Tell people that Jesus has a standard of sexual morality that they aren't conforming to. Try that one. Jesus brings division. And, he's, and he says right up front that he is going to do this. That there is a standard. Tell people they aren't meaning it. That they are sinning. That God is not happy with their sinfulness. That'll divide. That'll divide. Tell them that they are a condemned sinner. And tell them, go one further and say that you are destined for hell if you do not repent from your sinfulness. Jesus divides. And he tells us right up front... Let me tell you the truth. He says, I have not come to bring peace but division into those who see Christ for who He is and trust Him and those who don't. Tell them their life is not their own but that Jesus is Lord. Tell them that God has written authoritatively to us in a book. Tell them there is an afterlife that they should be more concerned about than they are this life that will bring division. The seriousness of Jesus' mission demands that we make dividing Decisions, But it also, those dividing decisions are to be clear-eyed divisions, decisions. We're not, just, we're not taking leaps into the dark. It's not some sort of, well, you know, we don't really know, but I think you, I think you should. We, we, it's not clear. No, this next section, Jesus goes on to interpreting the time. He says, look at the weather. And if you've grown up around here, you can kind of interpret the weather. I mean, if you lived on a farm, I, I spent my summers uh, just out in the pasture, like, that's what I would do. I'd get up in the morning, and if it was Saturday, I got to watch a few cartoons. But then once Dad was done with chores, it was just basically walk off with my German Shepherd, Scott, and we'd go out and play in the creek all day. And, you know, and so you had to get kind of smart that if clouds are building up, you could tell, well, this is a sprinkle coming in, or this is a storm coming in, or, you know, you kind of, you're able to tell the weather. Right? And Jesus is saying they're able to do this. The same thing in, in Jerusalem. You're, if, if clouds are building in the west over the Mediterranean, you're going to get wet. If the wind's blowing up from the south, it's going to get hot. Off of the desert, it's going to get hot. And so Jesus then gives this biting comment. You're able to clearly tell the circumstances of the weather, but here is Christ and you pretend you can't see hypocrites, that you're able to discern all of these things so clearly, yet when the Messiah shows up, 
when he displays himself with his miracles, when the dead are raised, when the demon-possessed are delivered, when the sick are healed, when he teaches with the authority that he teaches with, when he calms nature, he puts on display his mastery, his lordship. Nothing's more clear than this when who Jesus has presented himself to be, and yet they deny it. Jesus isn't calling for some sort of blind-eyed faith in him. It is, look, here is Christ. Here is this man who has done all of these things. Here is this man who caps it all off by being crucified, hung on a Roman cross, buried into the ground, and then raised from the dead three days later. How's that for clear-eyed decisions? Dividing decisions, yes, but not just over picadillos or preferences, over clear-eyed reality. This is who Christ has shown himself to be. The seriousness of Christ's mission demands dividing clear-eyed decisions, and those decisions are urgent. They are urgent decisions. This last section Jesus isn't giving legal advice. I know that it's, it's with its legal terms of this going to the judge and you're walking with your accuser. And what does Jesus say to do? He's, he's saying settle with your accuser before you get there. And it's not, I mean, it's, I guess it's okay legal device, advice. If you're guilty, settle out of court and then that way you don't get some sort of bigger uh, penalty coming your way. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, so don't hold me to that. Maybe it's terrible advice. I don't know. It, it works in the TV shows, okay? But it, so he says, settle with your accuser on the way. The point of this parable is that the guilty party headed towards judgment should wisely settle their case before they appear at the judge's bench. Jesus is warning against the delay of making sure your case before the great judge is a favorable one for you. The urgency is to not wait until it is too late to settle with your accuser. Guess what? In this parable, who are you? Who am I? We're the accused. And what's one worse? We're the accused who are honestly guilty. We are the ones who are approaching the judgment Seat, we are approaching the judge as the accused and as the guilty. And Jesus is saying, Why would you delay? Do not, don't delay on this point. Settle before you get to the judge. Hebrews 9 27, it's appointed for all men once to die and then comes the judgment. Once to die and then the judgment. And he's saying, Why would you wait? The urgency coming from the mouth of Christ is that. We are being pressed into this dividing, clear-eyed, urgent decision. What will you do with Christ? We have rebelled. We have sinned. We are deserving of God's just judgment. Christ has come to put that judgment into the light, to bring fire to the earth, and the seriousness of that mission demands dividing, clear-eyed, urgent decision. David Gooding says it like this in his commentary. Here's a quote from David Gooding. Christ was not playing at the redemption of mankind. Preaching for him was not a game. He had not come to tell people that it did not matter what they believed, that good and evil were all one, both now and eternally, that it didn't matter whether they believed the gospel or not. It didn't matter whether they accepted the Savior or reject them. He had come to bring and to force division. Decision must be made for Christ or against him. 
For God or for the devil? For salvation or perdition? For heaven or hell? And if the decision brought division even within the family, then it must be. Then, as it is now, a decision must be made. Where will you stand? Christ will bring division, and possibly within those whom you love most. Is Christ worth it? Is what Christ bring worth it? Will you stand with him? Don't close your eyes to the gospel and hope for the best. We are all on our way to the judgment day. We have not avoided guilt, but there is a way of rescue. There is a way of rescue. Christ has come and he has fulfilled this mission. He says there's a baptism which with I'm to be baptized and I'm eager that it would get done. What he's talking about there is the wrath that he is going to absorb. The fire that is coming towards sinners like you, like me, is poured out upon Christ on the cross. So that sinner like you and like me, confessing our sins, looking to Christ, trusting in him, can be forgiven and reconciled and approach the judgment with boldness. Approach the throne of God with boldness because we know that our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. The fire of judgment that's deserving of sinners is laid on his back. Look to Christ and be freed from the judgment. Be reconciled to this God. Find this peace that he has for sinners. The seriousness of Christ's mission demands decision. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, treat it as a decision. We, we do this as, in remembrance of Him, in remembrance of His broken body and shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Consider it as a decision. This is a dividing table. Those who do not trust Christ, who do not believe themselves to be sinners in need of a rescuer, should not come to the table. But those who know themselves to be sinners, in desperate need of a Savior, this is a table to come forward for. Those who believe, eat. Those who do not believe, don't. Come this morning. The seriousness of Christ's mission demands dividing, clear-eyed, urgent decisions. Trust in Christ's work this morning and be glad in God forever. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning. Give us this this clear-eyed vision of who you are. Father, I pray that as the gospel is presented here this morning, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would overcome any deficiencies in, in the presentation that I have laid out. And that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, to the urgency of this call, to be willing to be divided over these things that matter immensely. And with clear eyes, seeing ourselves, seeing you, seeing your son for who he is, Father, you would draw us near to yourself in this place this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.